This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. And I want to remind everyone we are now offering Category 1 CME credit through MyCares and Michigan State University. So the links to get your credit are in the show notes, and it is completely free. This week, we're going to be discussing a great article comparing extended release injectable buprenorphine to standard sublingual buprenorphine. How are you doing tonight, John? I'm doing great, Sonia. How about yourself? Doing okay. Doing okay. It's a little bit cold and wintry here in Pennsylvania right now, um, but I guess that's just that's just how it is in January. So, John, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine this week? I saw a really interesting article. It was actually just kind of in the late press on CNN. Uh, it's called FDA Approves First Test to Help Screen for Risk of Opioid Use Disorder. And in case you haven't been following this, the FDA actually just approved a genetic test that actually screens for your risk of developing opioid use disorder with exposure to prescription opioids. The test is called the AVERT-D test, and it's basically a cheek swab where it tests for 15 genetic markers associated with opioid response that kind of increase your likelihood of developing kind of tolerance or dependence. Um, it's only used for acute pain. So I guess the way it's kind of marketed is that for maybe patients that are coming for a surgery that can be associated with pain, like maybe a discectomy or a back surgery, you could offer this test and kind of get an example or have like a shared decision-making about your risk. Uh, it's specifically not for chronic use. So chronic pain patients, it's not what it's designed for. Interestingly, it was previously rejected by the FDA. So the same test last October was rejected in a pretty uh, overwhelming vote, 11 to 2. And it's basically due to concerns regarding the fact that you're putting like clinician judgment into a test. And so lots of false negatives also possibly could result in withholding um, kind of appropriate analgesia in the post-operative state. So it was actually reapproved or resubmitted and approved December of this year on the 19th with some additional stipulations. And the stipulations are, um, one, the company must provide training to healthcare providers regarding appropriate use of the test. So it's not something you can order, almost like a REMS type program. And two, they must have a large post-marketing study to assess the test performance. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting, uh, at least a concept, you know. It is interesting. I haven't heard about that. Did it talk about any correspondence between that risk score and the other risk scores for developing opioid use disorder that we use that take into account things like age and gender and, you know, past history and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So this is, a, this is basically uh, purely pharmacogenomics. So it's, it's purely just kind of looking for those surrogate markers. And I think that was some of the critique of the article or of the uh, approval was that it kind of bypasses some of those other kind of validated scoring systems regarding use. I've always worried a little bit about bias in some of those scoring systems. It makes sense. You know, let's give an example, a history of incarceration. So we know that a history of incarceration is correlated with risk of having opioid use disorder because there is a correlation between those two. But then when you're a clinician, it doesn't quite feel right to treat people who have a history of incarceration differently than people who don't in terms of what medication you might offer. So while I understand the concept of, you know, higher risk patients, people who are higher risk of adverse effects, that should be taken into account when you're choosing what to prescribe. It's a little hard just to me to feel like I'm treating patients differently based on, you know, sort of socioeconomic 
characteristics. And I wonder if these genomic tests will, I don't know, maybe contain some of that bias as well. Yeah, I think that, um, I'm not sure how much this kind of plays into your practice, but I know that the concept of pharmacogenomics for like SSRI and antidepressant use comes up a lot. And there's a very expensive panel that some people advocate for. It's, it's interesting. It's mostly about like CYP450 um, metabolism. So more so a side effect profile than true clinical response. But yeah, you do wonder like, is that truly a, a great surrogate for kind of response or to a treatment plan? And I think my only concern with a test like this is I think it could be useful for shared decision-making. I think people that have family histories may want to know that they're at increased risk. Certainly, I have very motivated patients um, with opioid use disorder histories that have very large surgeries like thoracotomies or pneumonectomies for lung cancer, and they actually avoid opioids altogether in the postoperative period because they're very motivated. So I guess if you had a high-risk profile, someone may feel the desire to to use like a more opioid sparing pain regimen. But I, I do worry about could this result also in someone interpreting this and withholding appropriate pain medication for someone in the postoperative state? Well, and it's all just risk. None of it is 100% guaranteed. And, and the question is, how big is the risk? You know, you know, I think some previous, our previous articles, it's one in a few hundred people who get exposed to opioids might develop opiate use disorder, which is kind of a big risk, but not huge. You know, how big is the risk for people who have a high score? Is it just slightly higher? Is it a ton higher? Is it almost guaranteed? You know, and those kinds of concepts are really hard for patients to understand and for doctors to understand um, and to put into actual practice when you have a patient in front of you. But it's a really interesting concept. I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see if we end up using something like that in the future. So what's going on in addiction medicine for you? So I had some kind of depressing news. Um, I saw it a few weeks back and I wanted to share it with everybody. So you and I both work with pregnant people with opioid use disorder. And while having opioid use disorder is associated with worse pregnancy outcomes, it hasn't seemed like the opioids themselves are harmful to the fetus. You know, classically, opioids are not teratogenic. They don't lead to congenital anomalies, growth problems, really anything. It's the other associated issues with opioid use disorder other drugs, tobacco use, malnutrition, lack of prenatal care, poverty, other infectious diseases, all those things can harm the fetus. But the opiates themselves, other than neonatal withdrawal syndrome, don't seem to really be a problem. However, there is some bad news in that area. There have been a cluster of congenital anomalies, sort of a new syndrome in newborns that seems to be associated with heavy fentanyl exposure in utero. They think that maybe the fentanyl is interfering with cholesterol metabolism of the fetus. And there was a cluster of infants, six infants born at a hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. And a very astute genetic counselor there recognized the congenital similarities in these infants and then started looking for other cases across the country. And they published a paper, which is sort of a case series of quite a lot of infants who had these similar anomalies and all of them were exposed to high levels of fentanyl in utero. So it was things like microcephaly, so small heads, small bodies, cleft palates, craniofacial abnormalities, finger and toe abnormalities, genital abnormalities. And of course, these are all infants, so they have no idea about the future cognitive abnormalities or behavioral problems that these children might experience in the future. But there were significant congenital anomalies in this cluster of babies. Um, and I'm just sort of sad about it. It's another casualty of the opioid epidemic. 
and women who maybe thought that while they knew fentanyl wasn't good, they did not think that fentanyl will cause birth defects, that, you know, they have caused problems with their fetuses and now their children. Um, so just sort of a sad development and a scary one because fentanyl is a dominant opioid being used in our country right now by people with opioid use disorder and pregnant women. So that's what I was thinking about. I'll put a link to the article where they describe this case series in the show notes for everybody to look at. It's super interesting, but I think it's another reason to encourage pregnant women to get into treatment and get off fentanyl as soon as possible. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I, that's the first I've heard of that. That's very interesting because you're right. I think kind of classically we're always taught it's really not the opioids themselves, but more so the kind of the withdrawal syndrome that's harmful to the fetus. It's interesting. And this is not promising in our fentanyl era if this is a true association or causative. Yeah. And of course, it's not 100% clear what the causative mechanism is, but there was no genetic syndrome found in this cluster of children. Um, and all of them were exposed to fentanyl in utero. And there is sort of a biologically plausible mechanism by which fentanyl might disrupt cholesterol metabolism. So I think there, it's biologically plausible, although you're right, totally not proven yet. But I think now that they know about it, they'll be able to be on the lookout a little more. Interesting. So, John, are you ready to talk about this article? Sure. I have a, a really interesting article um, this week. It was a very long article, so I feel like I was like taking out the heavy bag. It's 21 pages long, a lot of statistics, but a very good article just the same. So it's a superiority and cost effectiveness of monthly extended release buprenorphine versus daily standard of care medication. It's a pragmatic parallel group, open label, multi-center randomized control phase three trial. It's from The Lancet, December 2023. So a little bit of background here. Uh, in 2020, an estimated 61 million people around the world used heroin or non-medical opioids with use associated with respiratory suppression and fatal overdose. Opioid use disorder can arise and is maintained by hard-to-control cravings and compulsive drug-taking despite personal and social harms. Maintenance treatment with pure opioid receptor agonists like oral methadone, classically at a dose of 60 to 120 milligrams per day, or the partial opioid receptor agonist antagonist transmucosal buprenorphine at a dose of 8 to 24 milligrams a day, are considered the international standard of care for treatment of opioid use disorder. On average, methadone or buprenorphine maintenance is associated with reduced opioid use, increased abstinence, a reduced risk of fatal overdose, improved personal relationships, and better social functioning. In the UK, primary and secondary national health service clinics and non-government services provide treatment for opioid use disorder. Treatment is initiated through observed daily doses with patients eventually taking home up to 14 days of treatment. While standard of care treatment, there is substantial evidence that methadone and buprenorphine is suboptimal for many patients with previous cohort studies and meta-analysis showing some less than ideal outcomes. Up to 64% of patients continuing to use heroin despite treatment 10 or more days in the past month on patients in active treatment. 22% of currently absent patient exiting treatment, so kind of lost to follow-up. Only 53% of sublingual buprenorphine and 63% of methadone patients complete treatment, quote, successfully, end quote, and 50 to 90% of patients relapsing to opioid use one month after discharge from treatment, so still high relapse rate with discontinuation of treatment. 
observed once daily pharmacy dosing of medications for opioid use disorder is often cited as a stigmatizing experience causing patients to exhibit exit treatment and relapse. Once monthly extended release buprenorphine has previously been validated as non-inferior to the sublegal formulation in terms of opioid abstinence, there has been no studies to date evaluating whether the profile of the extended release depot can overcome the effectiveness limitations of the current standard of care medications. What's your thoughts about that topic, Sonia? I guess the authors of the article had felt that, you know, buprenorphine and methadone, you know, opioid agonist treatment was not necessarily as effective as it could be. Although I have to say, with it working for 50% of patients while they take treatment, like that's a lot more effective than a lot of our treatments. You know, number needed to treat of two to get someone off illicit opiates. So I actually think methadone and buprenorphine is very effective, but with it being such a high-risk disease, of course, it'd be better if it worked for all people. But I actually don't think it's so bad. What's often surprising to me is how much people rely on medication and the high relapse rate once you stop medication. I mean, that's, that's the big surprise for me, not how well medication works, but how poorly everything else works if you don't have medication in the mix. I was going to actually say the one thing that I kind of take away is actually the stigma. So kind of definitely observe treatment while often considered standard of care or oftentimes deemed kind of quote medically necessary. It is stigmatizing, right? It treats a patient like they're incapable of taking care of their own health needs. And also I have other patients kind of talk about self-stigma where they feel bad about themselves, not from an external source, just that they have to take a pill twice a day to feel a certain way. And so I do think that there is an emotional toll that might be kind of under-reported or kind of under-discussed in terms of these medications. Well, right. And we know with methadone, which in the U.S., methadone requires in-person daily dosing for a long time until you can take a week or two of it home, mostly just a week or just a few days. But that whole daily dosing thing is a huge stigma. And that's why I think the long-acting injectable medication is certainly a lot easier for a lot of patients. You know, there was another article I was going to present in terms of our addiction in the news. There was a big editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine saying how it was physically impossible to both be a methadone patient and have cancer. There's like no way you can keep your methadone clinic schedule and your cancer treatment schedule. At the same time, it's just too time consuming. You know, so I think that stigma related to daily dosing of methadone is a huge problem for patients. So what is the clinical question of this trial? Um, one, does extended release buprenorphine provide superior abstinence compared to oral methadone or transmucosal buprenorphine? Does extended release buprenorphine provide a superior safety profile compared to oral methadone or transmucosal buprenorphine? Is extended release buprenorphine a cost-effective treatment compared to oral methadone or transmucosal buprenorphine? A little bit about this study design. So this is called the EXPO study, and it stands for Extended Release Pharmacotherapy for Opioid Use Disorder. And it was a pragmatic, parallel group, open-label, multi-center, superiority, randomized, controlled, phase three trial conducted at five National Health Service community-based treatment clinics in England and Scotland between August 9th, 2019 and uh, November 2nd, 2021, comparing extended-release buprenorphine to either um, methadone or buprenorphine sublingually for 24 weeks. The study population was adults aged 18 and over with moderate to severe opioid use disorder at the time of program admission, and that's kind of standard DSM-5 criteria. They were on less than or equal to 24 milligrams a day of buprenorphine or less than 30 milligrams or equal to 30 milligrams a day of methadone at the time of study enrollment. 
they actually changed that throughout the study. Initially, it was 50, but I think they had such a difficulty kind of cross-tapering over um, to the extended release that they kind of redefined it to 30. All participants were allocated a clinic key worker, which is basically for us in the United States would be a, a social worker or case manager. And they were offered fortnightly, also kind of a UK term every other week uh, or monthly sessions for medication management and general uh, counseling. And, and they use the, the term fortnight often. I, I actually find myself using that more since I've, I've been reading this study when I tell someone to do something every other week. But you don't have teenage boys in your house, so no one is playing Fortnite. So, you, you know, as your kids get older, you won't be able to use it anymore. Exclusion criteria, significant hypertension, <laughs> cardiovascular disease, hepatic insufficiency, severe alcohol use disorder, history of allergic or adverse reaction to study medications, enrollment in naltrexone treatment in the past three months, uncontrolled mental health disorders, a suicide plan or attempt in the past six months, and criminal adjustments involvement that rest incarceration of the study participant. Randomization occurred in a non-masked manner. It was one-to-one random. They used blocked allocation for standard of care treatments versus the extended release buprenorphine with stratification by clinic and non-medical drug injecting in the past 28 days. So basically, they kind of tried to do equal amounts kind of distributed between the five clinic sites um, and also whether or not people were kind of actively using or not. So tried to uh, dissipate them kind of in a relatively equal distribution. I have a question, and you might get to this later, so sorry if I'm making you jump ahead. Sometimes in some countries in Europe, you can only give buprenorphine kind of observed dosing as like methadone. Is that true in the UK? Or could people do like take-home buprenorphine like we do in the US? I think from what I was reading, at least um, in the overview, they said up to 14 days is kind of what currently is allowed there. So you didn't have to go in every day? No, I think you're allowed up to 14 days of take-home. I'm not sure what the criteria for that would be. A fortnight's worth of take-home. A fortnight's worth of take-home, correct. So basically, a little bit about the study procedure. So they did a lot of testing, um, kind of a baseline face-to-face investigator-administered interview, and they did kind of typical demographic information. They did this adult service use schedule, the ADSYS, which is basically a test kind of evaluating hospital office, social service, law enforcement, um, and missed work due to illness alcohol consumption, um, frequency, quality, and maximum. So that's the ALK FQM, the craving experience questionnaire, frequency version, the CEQF, difficulties in emotional uh, dysregulation, short form, that's the DERS-FF, the EQ5D5L. They did a Montreal cognitive assessment, a MOCA, a structured clinical interview for DSM-5 disorders, the research version, They did a timeline follow back of 90 days. So kind of going back 90 days, kind of having people recount drug use. They did urine drug screens. They did a visual analog scale for perceived need and want for opioids and cocaine. So it's the vast N and the vast W. They did a quick inventory of depressive symptomatology, self-report, a quids SR. They did a work and social adjustment scale. That's a WSAS, addiction dimensions for assessment and personalized treatment and adapt test. Clinical Global Impression Severity Improvement, that's the CGIS and the CGII, a key work contact form, um, that's a KCF, a patient report outcome severity and improvement, a PRO-S and a PRO-I, and they did a service user recovery evaluation, which is called a SURE, and that was a perceived domain-based recovery status. So 
I felt like that was quite the plate. Oh my gosh, I hope they like brought snacks for people because that seems like it would take hours. I mean, some of them were literally look at this scale one to 10. Do you want this drug? I mean, that's pretty quick. I'm not sure some of these tests, I haven't kind of personally administered them um, or kind of seen people receive some of these. So that was the baseline interview. And then patients were randomized to receive either standard of care. So that's methadone or buprenorphine or the extended release buprenorphine. So those are the two groups, kind of the buprenorphine methadone standard versus the depot. Standard of care was started under observation and then based upon attendance and UDS results by interval could be switched out. You were allowed to switch between the standard of care. So if for some reason buprenorphine wasn't working for you, you could switch to methadone or vice versa. The extended release buprenorphine participants received their first 300 milligram injection immediately if they were on greater than or equal to 8 milligrams a day of buprenorphine or after a three-day run-in on 8 milligrams if baseline buprenorphine was less than 8 milligrams per day or after a three-day run-in if they had an 8 to 24 per day milligram per day of buprenorphine if baseline methadone dose was less than or equal to 30. So basically, you got it immediately if you're over 8. Any other scenario, you had kind of a run-in on eight if you weren't on it at all. And if you were on methadone, they tried to capture you at that 30 milligram threshold that we often hear is like the cross tapers threshold. Most of the patients received a loading dose of the 300 two times. That was uh, four weeks apart, followed by uh, Q4 week, 100 to 300 milligram booster doses for maintenance afterwards. They did clinic follow-up visits occurred every 14 days for 24 weeks. At every visit, you received a UDS and a timeline follow-back for drug use, so kind of direct recall. Every month, you received a visual analog scale for perceived need and want for opioids and cocaine, the VAS-N and VAS-W. On week 4, 12, and 24, you got an ADAPT, a SCID-5 revised, a CGIS, a CGII, a DERS-SF, a KCF, a PRO-S, a PRO-I, a SURE, a QUIDS-SR, a WSAS. And weeks 12 and 24, you got an ADSYS an EQ55L, and a SCIDS5 revised. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's like way too many surveys. It's a, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a lot of data. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. I, I would be interested to see you know, why they chose to kind of, at weeks 4, 12, and 24, give that battery, and weeks 12 and 24, a different battery. Um, it's kind of interesting. Lots of data points, though. It's a lot of data. The primary outcome was days of abstinence, so urine drug screens and timeline followback. Secondary outcomes were treatment retention, opioid use disorder, and cocaine use disorder remission, cocaine and benzodiazepine use that was via UDS and timeline followback, longest duration of continuous abstinence from opioids, cocaine, and benzodiazepines, alcohol use, that's the ALC, FQM, endpoint scores on the ADAPT, the CEQF, the VAS-N, the VAS-W, the CG-101, DERS-FF, PRO-I, SURE, QUIDS-SR, and WSAS. This paper was very stats-heavy. Um, so they did intention-to-treat analysis, and they did sensitivity analysis, ran many different ways. They did basically week one minus the last 14 days, covariable treatment days prior to enrollment, baseline predictors of missing data. They did a missing data, quote, worst case scenario and missing data, quote, best case scenario. They also did a cost effectiveness analysis, uh, which is likely incurrence of cost beyond the NHS and social services. They did quality of life years, and they did this incremental cost effectiveness ratio that kind of was their big kind of measure of cost effectiveness. And it was uh, the mean difference in cost between intervention group divided by mean difference in quality of life years. 
So what do you think so far of the trial? I thought it was good, actually. I mean, honestly, it's a relatively simple question, despite the excessive number of, you know, survey instruments. <laughs> you know, basically, tell me if I've got this right. People were either on methadone or buprenorphine, and they were stable, and they got randomized to make, switch or not over to the injectable buprenorphine. Correct. And you could switch between methadone or buprenorphine if you weren't on the injectable. And then they followed them for six months and saw who stayed off drugs. So that's a pretty like a pretty simple clinical question. And then they did all those surveys to see if there was any other data. I mean, this is just, I'm not knocking all these survey instruments because honestly, I don't even know what a lot of them are. But, you know, if you have too many surveys, too much data, something's going to be positive. You know, sometimes it's better to have fewer survey instruments. Like if they do so many of them, at least one is going to show a difference just through random chance. So I don't know. I guess that's my only hesitation about there being so many different endpoint scores in what is a relatively simple clinical question. I would kind of counter argue for the authors. The one thing I would say is I think that the the point is that they were trying to make this beyond just kind of like UDS negative, UDS positive. I think they were kind of looking at these kind of functional, emotional domains, like how they're operating in society, um, how patients kind of perceive themselves in their recovery. So I think it was looking at kind of those are kind of doctor centric um, outcomes, but I think they wanted to kind of look into explore these other domains that we often neglect that, you know, how patients function and, and how do they feel about themselves. And I think that the, the question's good there too. I mean, yeah, I mean, that is a good point. You know, the, the single outcome of abstinence, you're right. That's, that is totally a doctor domain. And a lot of patients, that's not their top priority. And if you can sort of get into, even if the two treatments are equally effective in terms of abstinence, if one is a lot more attractive to patients with a lot fewer side effects, you know, or less stigma, sure, then that's a, that is a good finding. Okay. So maybe I'll take it back. Go to town, survey, survey everything. All right. So is this trial valid? Um, the study costs were supported by a collaborative research grant from Indivier, who also produced the extended release buprenorphine. So there was some kind of industry funding. The authors had many disclaimers for research grants. The majority were nonprofit, academic, and non-industry related, uh, with the exception of Indivier and Beckley SciTech for three of the authors. I think I've, I've talked about this before. Like I did, I was a research assistant, which was not a glamorous thing, but at kind of university settings, a lot of people's kind of like oftentimes not very glamorous salary is kind of derived from research grants. So it's not uncommon to have some industry funded, even if they're kind of more academic. So it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. The study funder in Divier had no role in study design, data collection, data analysis, data interpretation, or writing of the report. There's a parallel group, open label, multi-center, superiority, randomized control, phase three trial of 314 participants with opioid use disorder. And this is nice, right? Because I feel like this is not what we get in addiction medicine. I always am kind of excited to do like a true trial. A lot of the, our other articles that we cover, it's kind of more population-based or kind of retrospective review or, or, you know, this is a true clinical trial. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally cool. I like the fact that it was uh, under, quote, standard conditions. So this is like a real-world trial. It wasn't super controlled environment. This was those five clinics. This is just what they were doing. And then, you know, they kind of just let it go. Recruitment was through standard uh, clinic activities with no media recruitment. I like this. I think it limits selection bias. I think a lot of other studies I see, they do like these kind of media blast campaigns. And you do subselect for a more functional 
group of patients when you do that. It's people that have access to the internet, people that have um, Facebook or, or whatever your social media choice is. So I, I think that it, I think you kind of capture some people that are kind of lower functioning and maybe that's just my bias or my thoughts on it, but it, it seems like it's probably more comprehensive of a true clinic environment. There was lack of a blinding. I think that'd be tough to do to give someone a pill and a placebo shot once a month without them kind of figuring that out. So I'm going to give them a pass on this. I think that that would be really, really hard to do. Endpoints were very uh, relevant patient-oriented outcomes, so UDSs, cravings, functionality, safety, care retention. They did all these sensitivity analyses, which sometimes, I think like you talked about, there's a lot of data overload. The fact that all the sensitivity analysis haven't got there yet, they all kind of say the same thing. So that makes me feel good that they, they did them so many different ways and got the same results. I, I was interested as to why they did it so many different ways. I mean, but it certainly is interesting that they all came out similar and kind of congruent with one another. The authors, um, these are some self-critiques by the authors. They were concerned that 24 weeks may be too short. You know, I, I kind of disagree. 24 weeks in kind of addiction, that's a lifetime for, for most patients. I think you can really get a good sense of, you know, how effective a treatment is. The only downside, I think, is maybe for cost analysis purposes, since that was a secondary question, possibly six months wasn't kind of enough to analyze that. Sort of like many things could be diminishing returns for these more expensive treatments. The UK population, it may not be generalizable to all treatment locations. So this is a very heroin predominant treatment group, 90.8% were heroin predominant. And there's less synthetic fentanyl at this time point. I think I hear the argument quite a bit that kind of the possibly methadone is favored for patients with these new fentanyl classes and being more effective at symptom control and kind of capture. That's just what I've been, I've heard. And we always hear kind of buzzword, ASAM, they said this many times. I don't know if that's true or not, but that certainly is a perception. There's author concern regarding the primary outcome measure and how there currently lacks a gold standard with regards to uh, measures of absence. So is it truly a binary outcome or is it more of a continuum, which it probably more so is? And the author was concerned about the cost uh, utility analysis being subject to missing data. And that really, you know, recommend redoing a study or analysis utilizing some registry data than kind of um, just the data that they had. Lots of thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was valid. I think the question of whether it's long enough is an interesting one. I really feel like the first six months in treatment for opiate use disorder is kind of different from subsequent time. And so it might be a little hard to extrapolate. Like after someone's been abstinent or successfully in treatment for six months, they kind of enter a different phase where they're a lot more stable. And so they might have a little more flexibility in which treatment they want to do. Like treatments might be more effective at that point. So I think it's good to know what works for the first six months. I think they're right. They might not be able to extrapolate that for people who are six months and beyond in terms of their kind of stability or abstinence. So I think six months is a perfectly good amount of time. I thought the outcomes were really good. I thought it was well-designed study. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's very valid. So what are the results kind of study population? Um, so 314 out of 1,752 participants screened were included in the study. The most common reason that a participant wasn't included was uh, refusal to join or baseline dose outside of the study range. So either on a buprenorphine dose too high or a methadone dose too high, or they just didn't want to do it. Certainly, I can respect that, kind of don't rock the boat. There was 156 patients in the standard of care group and 158 in the extended release buprenorphine group, and they were very similar at baseline. 
They were middle age, kind of mean age of 42. They were male, 74.2%. They were white, 83.8%. They were heroin users, 90.8%. Most met criteria for severe opioid use disorder, so 98.1%. Many also met criteria for severe cocaine use disorder, that was 49.7%. Many were using drugs within the 28 days prior to enrollment, so 44% were using opioids, 48.7% cocaine, 22.9% benzodiazepines. Many used alcohol within the 28 days prior to enrollment, so 55.7% were drinking. Mean drinking days in the 28 days before was 5.2, with a mean of 8.9 drinks per day. They scored similarly on craving scales, emotional dysregulation, depression scales, and work social adjustment scales. 210 out of 314, which is 66.9%, completed the study. 54.5% in the standard of care group, while 79.1% in the extended release buprenorphine group. In terms of the procedure itself, 155 out of 156, that's 99.4% of standard of care participants, received their allocated drug with 123 out of 155, that's 79.4%, enrolled in ongoing treatment at the end of the trial. 137 out of 157, that's 87.8% of sublingual buprenorphine patients had dosing information with a mean dose of 12 milligrams per day with a range of 1 to 26 milligrams per day. There were 11 patients on methadone, and they all had dosing information with a mean methadone dose of 28.9 milligrams per day with a range of 20 to 61. Right. Now that seems, yeah, real low, right? That is light. Now they did like select, right? So they selected for 30 or below. So I think this is a little selection bias right here, right? There are people on low dose methadone that they included, not kind of the higher dose group. 150 out of 158, that's 94.9% of extended release buprenorphine patients receive their allocated study drug with 110 out of 158, 69.6% receiving all six injections. The most common dosing profile was 300 milligram loading dose times two followed by 100 milligrams a month or Q28 days times four. And that was done in 68.2% of patients. In terms of the primary outcome, Mean days abstinence from opioids was 104.37 in the standard of care group, which was less than 123.43 in the extended release buprenorphine group. They did this adjusted incident rate ratio, which was 1.18, and that did meet statistical significance. Subgroup analysis showed that patients with more severe opioid use disorder-related problems, as evident by higher CGIS, had statistically significant less days of abstinence. And that had an adjusted IRR of 0.68, and that was statistically significant. Subgroup analysis of patients with the CGIS in the moderate to extreme range exhibited more mean days of abstinence and with the buprenorphine extended release group at 114.23 days versus 81.53 in the standard of care group, also statistically significant with an IRR of 1.32. Some secondary outcomes, the total mean days of enrollment and study treatment was higher in the extended release buprenorphine than the standard of care group, 144.6 versus 128.5 days, statistically significant with an adjusted IRR of 1.12. With censoring the average number of days until discontinuation, it was higher with the extended release buprenorphine than the standard of care group, 154 versus 138.2. And that was also statistically significant with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.46.
There is no statistically significant effect noted on cocaine use, cocaine cravings, benzodiazepine use, or alcohol use. There were evidence of extended release buprenorphine treatment effects for the recovery strength subscales of the ADAPT, the SURA, the WASAS, greater improvement on the CGII, and greater improvement on the PRO-I. So basically, greater improvement in strength, patient perception of recovery, and patient-reported outcomes. Last thing we're going to talk about safety and cost-effectiveness. Adverse events were higher in the extended-release buprenorphine group as a whole, with 123 participants, that's 81%, compared to the standard of care group, where it was only 67 participants, that was 42.9%. That was kind of surprising to me, although when you dig into it, the extended-release buprenorphine group, the most common adverse effect was basically rapidly uh, resolving pain from administration that occurred in 26.9%. So that does make sense. So kind of injection site pain that's transient. The most common adverse effect in the um, standard of care group was infections. And that was 28 out of 133. That's 28.6%. There were 11 serious events in the extended release buprenorphine group. That was 7%. And there was 18 serious events in the standard of care group at 11.5%, which seems kind of more like what I would expect. Most common were psychiatric disorders, CNS disorders, hepatobiliary pathology injury slash poisoning, procedural complications, and unintentional drug poisoning. Four patients in each group were treated in the ED following unintentional drug poisoning and discharge. One participant in each group died of unrelated causes. For cost effectiveness, extended release buprenorphine was more expensive with a 1,033 pound mean incremental cost of treatment. That translates to dollars at $1,276. Just to give you an idea, the list price of depot buprenorphine, uh, the formulation available in the United States is $2,016.52 per month currently. Extended release buprenorphine was associated with a more cost-effective incremental quality adjusted life year of 0.02, so slightly more effective. And this incremental cost-effectiveness ratio for the extended release formulation was uh, 47,540 pounds uh, with a willingness to pay of 30,000 pounds. So, you know, probably not cost-effective per this particular model. So that was a lot of information. That was a lot of information. I don't want to put you on the spot. Can you do like a quick summary, bottom line? If you if you say to distill this into a couple one-liners, um, certainly in terms of uh, days of abstinence, um, the depot outperformed standard of care. In terms of kind of subgroup analysis, the more severe patients actually tended to do better in the depot group than the standard of care, so possibly a selection bias there. Uh, patients that were receiving the depot buprenorphine also had kind of more time in treatment, higher length of time till discontinuation of treatment, and they had improvement in some self-recovery scales compared to standard of care. So basically, in, in most domains, they were either equal or the extended release outperformed. Wonderful. So, you know, kind of, I always kind of boil this down to like, does this help me in my patient care? You know, I am an outpatient family med doc. I practice addiction medicine as well. I offer a variety of medications for opioid use disorder. I do do uh, depot buprenorphine as one of my treatments. I will be kind of fully transparent. When this product first came out, I was kind of drinking the Haterade due to the cost. I just thought that it was, the cost was outrageous and I, I didn't see what the benefit would be. And I will go on record. I was totally wrong. This is a great medication for some patients. 
Anecdotally, many of my current patients on the extended release buprenorphine, they do have severe opioid use disorder, and many of them were actually unsuccessful in a methadone maintenance program prior to me taking them on. So that is not an uncommon story that I see uh, in my clinic. Currently, patient preference really kind of guides my decision-making to provide either sublingual buprenorphine, extended release buprenorphine, or naltrexone. Uh, for my patients with opioid use disorder or refer them to a methadone maintenance program if their care cannot be accommodated in my clinic. This expo study would suggest that I should possibly guide the patients with more severe opioid use disorder towards the depot uh, as they may do better. Although it's not my decision, it's the patient's decisions ultimately. Because there's thoughts, at least from this study, that there is an association it could uh, result in uh, more opioid abstinence, more treatment retention, greater suppression of cravings, and improved emotional state, particularly among that subgroup. The only possible limitations I see from this study is that um, it was the predominantly heroin group. I think that the question is, how does this perform in kind of the fentanyl era? I think that's kind of TBD. I mean, theoretically, they would perform similarly, although... I don't think we always see that. Uh, At least some of the data might be conflicting there. We'll just have to kind of see as that kind of moves forward. But certainly in this group here that was predominantly heroin, it did seem to be more effective. The only other limitation I see is that these were kind of stable patients. And, you know, you and I often see patients who are unstable. They're still using illicit drugs. They're struggling to get off them. They haven't even gotten on either methadone or buprenorphine. So some of our most unstable and sort of sickest patients wouldn't necessarily make it into this study. And I also worry a little bit about the lack of the high-dose methadone patients. I mean, it really, just to be able to transition to buprenorphine, you had to be on relatively low-dose methadone in this study because you had to be able to be randomized to get buprenorphine injection. But I don't know quite how that translates to our current kind of methadone population. Like someone who's stable on 120 milligrams of methadone, could we say that they do better switching over to extended release buprenorphine? You know, probably not given this study. Like we don't know given this study. I think that's the only other group that's kind of missing from this data. Sure. Any other thoughts? No. I mean, I use extended release buprenorphine as well. It's a great medication, but you know, it wasn't dramatically superior to the sublingual buprenorphine. And so it really does come down to patient preference. Some people say, I hate injections. I don't want it. Or I hate dealing with the pharmacy. So I want it. It's, there's a lot of factors beyond the efficacy that makes patients choose one treatment over another. So I do think patient preference is key in this. And those are some things that aren't captured in this study. But it makes me very comfortable saying that, especially for a patient who's stable on buprenorphine, switching over to the extended release might be even more effective. And it certainly isn't worse. So I really am comfortable telling patients they could be on whatever formulation works best for them. Yeah, I think it's still kind of choose your own adventure for this for for patients. And I'm going to offer all of them. It's interesting. I, I do see that the kind of the street talk about this, people often know about it and it has a, a relatively positive uh, stigma or a positive reputation amongst the kind of recovery community. So I don't have much difficulty getting people to take it if they if they would be a good candidate. No, me neither. Well, thank you, John, for presenting that article. I think it was really great. We did get some comments that I wanted to share from our listeners. So one of our YouTube listeners named Ilham Foster was obviously going through the back catalog and sent us in a comment about episode 15, which was on methadone versus buprenorphine for opiate use disorder in pregnancy. And they said, quote, glad to find more recent research. Women are far too overlooked where research is concerned. So I just wanted to thank 
Ilham for that comment. We got another back catalog comment as well on our Facebook group from Parmas Rad, who was listening to episode 26, which was about the concept of addiction survivors. So they said, I love this article and your discussion of it. In my opinion, it is empowering and more accurately describes current state of patients than euphemisms like in recovery or addict alcoholic for patients who are abstinent but still introduce and identify themselves as such. Thank you. And for those of you who might not have listened, that was a great article we talked about where we talked about people who are, rather than in addiction recovery or addiction as a chronic disease, thinking of as survivors of addiction. So if you want to, go back and listen to episode 26. So thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in future episodes, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, threads, email, a lot of ways to contact us, and the links will all be in the show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Our CME support is from MyCares, and we are produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been changed to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day. 